name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here. And kids, kids, can you guys all come in over here? We have a carpet set up right here. I know this is different than we usually do, but just come on over. And can I also have our volunteer leaders uh, to come in as well? Ms. Katz right there. Can I have Ms. Pamela, Pastor Tom, and Ms. Arlette? Come on in, folks. So, welcome everybody to Spark. And kids, instead of going to the study room right now, we're going to do our lesson in here with everyone. And we're going to start off by saying the Lord's Prayer, which you guys all know. You guys know it, of course, too, but we do it a little differently. We have hand motions for this. So follow along with us, if you will. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. The adults are still doing it. Never and ever. Amen. So... Who here, you guys included, remembers the rules that spark it everywhere we go? Can somebody tell them for us? Yes, Miss JJ. What's the first one? Whoa. Love God. Love God. What's the second one? Love people. Love people. What's the third one? No wacko. No wacko. What does no wacko mean? Crazy. crazy. Anything that's crazy, anything that you shouldn't be doing, anything that where you're not loving God and your neighbor is considered wacko. That doesn't mean that talking is bad. It just means that talking when someone else is talking is not loving your neighbor. That's all that means. And who gets to pick what's wacko? I get to pick what's wacko. Pastor Tom gets to pick what's wacko. Miss Pamela gets to pick what's wacko. Miss Kat gets to pick what's wacko. Miss Arlette gets to pick what's wacko. Miss Christine gets to pick what's wacko. So it's all these people here get to, get to choose what's wacko. And can you tell us our last rule, JJ? Be safe. Be safe. Right. Now, what happens if you mess up? Will you get another chance? It's like you memorized it or something. It's brilliant. It's been burned into your brain. Well done. So, for the last few weeks, actually a few months, we've been talking about the book of Acts. We talked about all these people getting baptized, you guys remember. And we're going to keep, well, you should have been coming to class. That's the thing there. But we'll continue talking about the apostles, especially Paul, next week. But today we're going to jump back into the story of Jesus because all of these folks have been talking about the story of Jesus from the Gospel of John. Yes? That's an excellent point. We will discuss that later. But in short, when you get baptized, it's kind of a sign that you've changed, that you're dying because you're underwater to the way you used to be. When you come out of the water, you're a new person, and everything is new around you. So even though the water might be dirty, you are no longer dirty. Well, this is where it gets complicated, because sometimes you can still think the same way, but you don't have to anymore. That's the difference. You're absolutely right. I'm going off track. We'll keep going. All right. So we're talking about the Gospel of John, and who your dad was named after, probably. So in the Gospel of John, a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus heal a man who couldn't quite walk. 
as a way of, of Jesus telling people who he was. But people weren't quite getting it. The next chapter, chapter 6, we saw Jesus feed over 5,000 people and walk on water in order to help people understand who Jesus was. But people weren't quite getting it. In John chapter 7, we talked about the Feast of Sukkot, or the Festival of Booths. You're going to see a booth out here in a couple of months. And there, Jesus was explaining to the people who he was. But people weren't quite getting it. Pastor Omer talked about John chapter 8, where Jesus talked about his relationship to God the Father. I am. Who Jesus was, how he protected a woman who had broken God's law, and led the people to show her mercy and forgiveness. But the people weren't quite getting it. Pastor Tom talked about John chapter 9, where Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. And Jesus showed people who he was and what it means to see God at work. But the people weren't quite getting it. Today, we're going to talk about John chapter 10. Right after Jesus heals the blind man, he saw that the people weren't quite getting it. Who is Jesus? What does it mean to follow God's laws? They weren't sure. So to help them, Jesus decided to tell them a story. Now, we've talked about parables before. You guys remember parables? We've talked about those before. Those are stories that can help someone to understand something. This isn't a parable, but it kind of feels like it. This is a story about a shepherd and the sheep who know him. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. 
The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, is game two ready? Okay, just checking. Does Jesus give chances or only God? Jesus does whatever God the Father wants him to do. So whatever God wants him to do, if he says give more chances, he will. And Jesus will. Now, to understand this idea, we had these two shepherds. And it's one shepherd, and then we had another person trying to tell the sheep what to do. So I'm gonna, we're going to play a quick game. It's kind of like Simon Says called The Shepherd Says. And I want everyone, the folks in here, adults, folks outside, hey, everybody on Zoom. Hi, mother-in-law. We're all going to play this game. She's on there. We're all going to play this game, okay? So I'm going to call up. Hold your question until she, we explain the game. So Miss Pamela is the good shepherd. So Miss Pamela's got her sheep. She's got her crook. And she's got her sheep pen. You see that big thing? That's her sheep pen. And so I am a stranger. You guys have no idea who I am. Let's pretend. All right. Let's pretend. Now, Miss Pamela is going to tell you to do something, and because she's your shepherd, you'll hear her and follow whatever she tells you to do. I am a stranger, so you shouldn't do what I say. You guys got it? You guys got it? Okay, here we go. Everybody stand up. No, 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 sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. Everybody stand up. No, 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 sit down, sit down, sit down. No, 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 no. Touch your noses. Touch your noses, everybody. Touch your noses. Turn no, no, to no, 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 no. Turn to the left. Turn to the left. Turn no, no. To the side. Everybody hop. Jump up and Touch down. Come on, guys. Toe. Jump up and down. Okay. We got <laughs> Spin a circle. Spin a circle. Shout out loud. Jesus. Jesus. Say, what time is it? What time Shout is it? Shout out loud. It's game time. No, it's game time. It's game Raise time. Everybody dance like this. Come on, guys. Raise your hands up. You guys are too good at this game. Well done. Well done, everybody. Miss Pamela, can you tell them all to sit down, please? Oh. My sheep already sit down. The sheep. Or the, she- the, sheep the shepherd didn't say down. to do that, so you have to listen to the shepherd, all right? Okay. Stand now. up. Stand up. Sit down. Sit down. <laughs> so, do you all get it? It can be really hard to listen to multiple voices. So you guys get a really good job considering. Now, Miss Pamela is going to take you guys out to play another game. Miss Pamela, the Good Shepherd, is going to take you outside to the grass where you're going to help her find 140 sheep. So you're going to go out there. Everybody grab one of those rings. And you're going to help her find 140 sheep. Remember, wait, 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 wait. Remember. They're the good shepherd's sheep. They're not your sheep. You don't get to keep them. They belong to the good shepherd. So give them to her. Okay. Good. You're getting it, Olivia. Bye, everybody. Okay, so for everyone else who decided not to go out with them, the game didn't end, so you all lose. She brought them outside. But, number two, secondly, 
the passage we just covered has a ton of information in it. We just covered the first part of it in the video. So I'm going to break it down. We're going to start with verses 1 to 6. Oh, that's the video I was going to show them. They're going to go look for stuff. So, John chapter 10, verses 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. Remember, this is a continuation of the previous chapter, John chapter 9. So Jesus is speaking to the same crowd who just watched him heal a blind man. But they don't understand what's happening. So Jesus decides to offer them a metaphor. He focuses on another sense besides the blindness, however. This time he focuses on hearing. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all, out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they know, do not know the voice of strangers. Now, hold that thing in your ID in your head. Following voices, following the voice of the, of the shepherd. And, of course, as in every instance we've seen so far in John, the majority of the audience doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. So Jesus decides to explain the metaphor in the following verses, 7 to 10. Jesus said, again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus calls himself the door to the sheepfold. As you can see here, there's a sheep pen built of rocks and there's one doorway. Instead of having a doorway there, the shepherd sits there. The shepherd acts as the guard. The shepherd acts as the door. In other words... It is through Jesus that the sheep have access to an abundant life, finding grass to eat outside, and a safe place to rest inside, and a flock to be a part of. It's also through Jesus that other people receive legitimate access to the sheep. Jesus names thieves and robbers as those who came before him and who attempted to interact with the sheep. Note that Jesus doesn't prevent others from getting access to the sheep. Even if their motives are harmful to the sheep, they still have access. They can still kill, they can still steal, they can still destroy. All of this suggests that a follower of Jesus isn't exempt from the same dangers as a non-follower is. Sometimes we Christians engage in all sorts of magical thinking about what God should do, what God will do. For example, I heard recently a story from um, one of my cousins about an acquaintance who, a couple of months into the pandemic, wore a mask to his church's worship service. After service, a fellow churchgoer who wasn't wearing a mask walked over to him and said, don't you have any faith in God to protect you? For scripture says, quoted, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Will Jesus protect his people from danger? Certainly he can. But in the gospels and in the apostles' writings, we hear over and over and over about followers of Jesus undergoing suffering for a purpose. So following Jesus doesn't offer an exemption from danger, like we want to believe, even when we cherry-pick Bible verses that say otherwise. Now, the next part of our verse, uh, passage 11 to 18, Jesus elaborates more on this parable, this pseudo-parable. 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. We have Jesus identifying himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep and who knows his sheep and his sheep know him. In contrast, we have the hired hand who is not dedicated to the sheep in the same way. Jesus doesn't identify who the hired hand in this metaphor is. And that's smart because the Jewish leaders who are sitting there listening to this at the moment probably wouldn't have been thrilled about being called out like that. The difference between the hired hand and the sheep, the hired hand is self-protective, selfish. He will just take off when he is threatened, and he'll allow the sheep to be stolen, killed, and destroyed. Jesus' story sounds a lot like the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, in which the prophet Ezekiel lays out a very similar metaphor. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds. The Jewish leaders who made this connection between Ezekiel's prophecy and Jesus' story must not have been very happy. And this, this right here serves as a warning for today's ministry leaders as well. God is watching. In seminary, I learned, or I was warned of the temptation of spiritual abuse with this passage and with the words, Be humble or be humbled. And just like in Jesus' story, the good shepherd, or literally the God shepherd, is taking over for those failed hired hands. As a sheep seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. Jesus speaks of one flock of sheep, the Jewish people. But we also, he also speaks of another flock of sheep that are not of his fold, likely referring to the Gentiles who have and will become followers of Jesus. And Jesus says he will unite the two flocks so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. And Jesus continues by saying that his sacrifice is his choice. Why emphasize this here and in previous and subsequent verses? First of all, if Jesus were to be forced to sacrifice his own life, then his motivation for doing so would just be duty and obedience and not love for his father and not love for his sheep. It would subtract greatly from his passion and death in the chapters to come. Secondly, this acts as a barrier against the anti-Semitism, which will run rampant in Christian culture for centuries to come. The Jews did not kill Jesus as many have said, to justify violence against the Jewish people. Rather, Jesus gave up his life for both the flock of Jewish people and the flock of Gentiles. And after all this, as we've seen, the confusion over Jesus' identity very much remains, as the crowd is listening to this metaphor are divided. He's possessed, but he healed the blind man just now. How can he be possessed? Let's take a look at the last part of the chapter, and let's watch another video. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered round him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? 
If you are the Messiah, tell us, plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now jumping back to verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. There has been a quantum leap, a time jump, in our story from verse 21 to verse 22. Because we now find Jesus in the temple in Jerusalem on the Feast of Dedication. Or as many of us know it, Hanukkah. If you're not familiar with Hanukkah, you can find it in the story of, in the, find the story in the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which can be found in non-Protestant versions of the Bible. Hanukkah is celebrated in December as a remembrance of a miracle that God performed to sustain the Jews under siege in the temple as they rebelled against the Seleucid Empire. And that's where you see the menorah, the story of the eight days and the oil continuing to burn, even though it should have run out. This event took place in 168 CE, two centuries before Jesus. And the question then was, was the leader of this rebellion a messiah, one anointed by God to save Israel from his enemies? The crowds in Jerusalem have been debating Jesus' identity for months now, between verses 21 and 22. So given that he's walking around in the temple of Jerusalem during the Feast of Hanukkah, it makes sense that the crowd asks, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ that was sent here to save us? Jesus' response was, my words and my miracles all say so, but you don't believe it. Why? Because you're not my sheep. And he goes on to reprise the good shepherd metaphor from earlier. He introduces a new group, the sheep who do not hear the good shepherd's voice. And the reason why? They're not a sheep. Now, at this point, we could discuss the Calvinist concepts of election and predetermination. And if you want to, we can absolutely discuss that later. But I'd like to set that aside for now because it's a long conversation. The remainder of this passage, however, has Jesus debating with the crowd about his identity as the Son of God, one in being with the Father, and his words, his words proving his works. Actually, the other way around. His works proving his words. However, for the remainder of our time, I'd like to focus on this concept of hearing the voice of the good shepherd. Hearing the voice of the shepherd requires the sheep to be able to discern between that voice, the voices of thieves and robbers who will harm the sheep, and the voices of hired hands who will not step in to keep the sheep from harm. But today, how do we discern God's words to us? How do we discern God's will for us? How do we figure out what is and what is not of God? Well, there are precedents in the Bible referring God's will out. In the Old Testament, we have Genesis 12, where God speaks to Abraham of a promise, audibly, potentially, or through a messenger, as he also did. In Genesis 37, we have dreams. Joseph receives dreams about what was to happen. Uh, Exodus 18, we have Moses receiving wisdom from his father-in-law Jethro. And you can't 
Debate your father-in-law. He's not on there. Um, Judges 6 has Gideon using fleeces to clarify God's will. Ruth 4 has Boaz going to the city gates to talk to the elders in Bethlehem. And in Exodus, Leviticus, and lots of other places, we have the Jewish high priest casting lots, essentially rolling dice to divine God's will. And in the New Testament, we have Mary and Zechariah hearing from God's messenger in Luke 1. In Matthew 2, we have Herod consulting with the scholars to determine the Messiah's birth location as recorded in Scripture, or foretold in Scripture. Acts 1, the apostles decide to cast lots to figure out whose Judas' replacement will be. And by the way, they're wrong about who the replacement will be. Uh, Acts 9, Saul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, physical interaction with God. Acts 10, Peter learns of the inclusion of Gentiles through a dream, and then the Holy Spirit confirms it as he's awake. These are all examples of people determining God's will in Scripture, and there are lots of variations on these. All of these require creating space to hear God, and there are tried-and-true methods to help us figure out God's will. These are known as spiritual disciplines. Now, some of you may be familiar with this book by Richard Foster called The Celebration of Discipline, which outlines the disciplines of meditation, prayer, solitude, service, confession, worship, and so on. All of them give God a space to speak to you and a space to be heard. We could think of spiritual uh, disciplines as a means to an end, a divining rod or a Ouija board, Uh, some kind of device that determines what God is doing or what God will do. But this is completely the wrong perspective about spiritual disciplines. We don't use these disciplines to figure out God's will alone. We use them to build our relationship with God. God is talking to us constantly, but about much more than the one thing that's on our minds. And our relationship with God is so much more than master-servant, commander-soldier. You call, I answer. My purpose, your action. We spend so much time seeking the answers to, should I take this job? Should I date this person? Should I explore this opportunity? They're all excellent questions for big, urgent issues in our lives. But is God even trying to talk about these things to us at this particular moment? What if God is trying to speak to us about something we consider unimportant? How often do we dismiss God's guidance because it falls outside of our expectations, which honestly are usually focused on securing our own happiness. Martin Luther King once said, I believe that standing up for the truth of God is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. But we regularly fall for the, God wants me to be happy. So he wouldn't want me to make that choice, way of thinking. God could be standing for truth right in front of us. He could be healing the blind all around us, showing mercy and rescuing those trapped in sin all around us, feeding the hungry all around us, walking all around us. And just like with the crowds around Jesus in our story today, it could fall on deaf ears. Not because we're not listening, but we're so unaccustomed to hearing his voice that we don't know what to listen for. We often turn discernment into a series of conditions, and we've all heard teachings at some point where they say, perform the spiritual discipline, and then you'll get right with God. Hey, perform the spiritual discipline, and you'll get right with God. We hear those kinds of preach, this kind of preaching regularly. But rote, blind performance of these misses the point. 
If someone only came to you when they need something from you, then that relationship is purely transactional. It's not actually much of a relationship. If God, as the Father, as Jesus, as the Holy Spirit, if God is only there to hand out guidance, advice, and blessings, it's a pretty shallow relationship. And it's one that we can dump as soon as we don't get what we want. We are to love God with all our hearts, souls, and strength. Spiritual disciplines are patterns that paint the broad strokes. But what that relationship ultimately looks like is between you and God. Now, in your mind's eye, think of a relationship in your life right now. A friend, a family member, a spouse, a partner, a lover, or someone you'd like to invite into your life. And isn't there an ebb and flow, a rhythm to these relationships? Sometimes things are great. You're vibing with each other. You're enjoying life together. You're building towards something. And sometimes you're not on the same page. Sometimes you have different expectations for what should happen or what should have happened. You're frustrated with each other. You're angry with each other, wondering whether it's over. Turn it up. Hey, turn, turn it up. Turn it up. He's preaching right now. Let's listen to him. I have this whole sermon about Hosea where I use this. I'm not going to do that here. But the general idea is that when you're struggling in a relationship with someone and you want to make things work, what do you do? You become intentional about spending time with them, talking with them, doing things with them and for them, getting advice from other people how to connect with them. Now, looking at our spiritual disciplines, how are these different than anything you would do to foster a relationship with this person you're thinking about. Yes, a relationship with God is a lot bigger than what we're talking about, but it's actually very similar to any other relationship. You can love and appreciate each other in one moment, and you can be frustrated and judgmental in the next. Growing and maintaining a relationship with God requires expressing the same love languages as you would to a person. That might include doing things you don't want to do for the sake of finding common ground. Prayer may not be your thing, but it's really tough to build a relationship with with God without actually talking to God. Service to others might be tough for you, but if it's something that God loves, you might have to join in with him. 
just to find out why God loves it. Corporate worship may not be interesting to you, but if God loves to hang out with part at parties, you might want to come along too. The good shepherd wants more from the sheep than just to follow orders. He wants the sheep to live life and have it abundantly. He wants to provide that life for you. He wants to experience that life with you. So get to know his voice. Yes, you can seek discernment, but a better goal for spiritual disciplines is relationship. You can seek an afterlife in heaven, but a better goal is to live life with God right now. You don't have to settle for anything less because God doesn't want you to. Whatever you do, don't let knowing God's will for your life be the end-all and be-all of your relationship with God because you'll be missing out on so much more. Get to know God so well that when he calls, you will answer. Not because he'll give you something, but because he wants to be your one and only. Now, Jesus spoke about unity with the Father. And his prayer that night before his death was that we would be one as he and the Father are one. One way in which this can be, we can be one is through the celebration of the Lord's Supper, also known as communion. Communion. Unity with one another. Let us celebrate this common love, this common faith, this common hope together. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took up the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at our table.